Welcome back to Behind the Play. My name is Alex Adams, and today I'm very excited to introduce our guest, Blake Murphy, who covers the Raptors, Blue Jays, the host of the fan drive time for Sportsnet. And Blake, first, I wanted to say that I've followed you for years. You're so smart, funny, and your range of analysis is is crazy in terms of just the sports you cover. So it's it's really cool to have you on. Um, you're a must follow on Twitter, and I don't understand the WWE references all the time. <laughs> But uh, I really appreciate you uh, taking the time and coming on. Yeah, no problem, man. I don't know how much all of that's true, but uh, yeah, we'll see if we can get you up to speed on the wrestling stuff. Yeah, yeah. I, I just know. Uh, I just need to know when the next WrestleMania is, and and then we'll soon, be soon, like two okay. weeks from now. Okay, cool. Where is it? Uh that I want to say L.A. Okay, okay, okay. Cool, cool. I'm not hundred percent um, sure, but I think okay. LA. Yeah, I first wanted to ask you. When did you first think you might want to pursue a career in sports journalism and writing? Um, so like the cheesy answer is like when I was a little kid, um, like there are pictures of me like as a, I don't know, five or six year old, like playing mini sticks and interviewing my little brothers after the games and wow. stuff like that um, with like fake microphones and stuff. So pretty early, but um, no, I went to, so after high school, I went to business school and, and was enrolled in law school and like kind of, didn't think that sports stuff was like actually possible as a career. Like, I don't know if it was just like uh, there weren't enough stories about how to get into the industry yet or whatever, but it just like, it didn't strike me as like a, a possible career path. You kind of thought at that time, like, well, yeah, ex players and ex coaches get the front office jobs and the media jobs. So, um, so I hadn't really thought about it much, but when I was between uh, business school and law school I took some time off because I needed to make money I couldn't afford to go to law school yet uh, and I was I had written a little bit for fun on the side during um, during undergrad and mm -hmm. then during that kind of year where I was just working and trying to save money I was writing a lot for fun and then eventually I was like I'll defer my law school one more year and then eventually was like sorry uh, eventually decided to to give that a try so like actually trying to make it a career i would say like 2012 ish okay. um but oh like sports has always been like a like a monster part of my life and like i played hockey like competitively until i was like i don't know 16 or something like that and yeah it's always been there just didn't think it was like a reasonable career path until much later and i know like i knew you originally from following you covering the raptors and when you started in the industry because now you cover so many sports. Did you want to write about hockey, for example, or the Raptors, or were you more generalist and you just loved writing? Yeah, I didn't really have a, a preference. So, um, you know, you first start, you just kind of throw everything at the wall and, and see what you're good at. And, you know, the first advice I give a lot of young writers is you have to just like write a bunch and not, not like anywhere other than your own blog, really. Like, you just have to figure out what you're going to sound like and what your voice and style is going to be. And if you went back and read, I don't know, like the first 10 or 12 things I ever blogged, it probably reads like someone's doing like Bill Simmons cosplay because like Bill Simmons was the yeah. one person you could look to and be like, see a normal person can, can do sports media. So I'd imagine a lot of my stuff from then kind of sounded like that at the start. And then you develop your own niche and your own voice. So uh, the first kind of niche that I, like I was still doing Raptor stuff and uh, Leafs and Canucks stuff, but where I first like got a bit of 
a foothold and a momentum was analytics based stuff across different sports. So, um, you know, take it at that point in time, this will make me sound old, but it was like 2012 ish, you know, uh, analytics were kind of first coming to hockey in a, in a public way mm -hmm. and like being able to take those and explain them in a way that the dudes I'm playing shinny with on Sunday morning, could understand or my dad could understand or something like that um taking some baseball stuff and baseball's always been more data rich but mm -hmm. framing it around how do we make decisions and then you know this kind of there was a wave of using good sports analytics to make money before sports betting came along and yeah. it was like when everyone else was just like like everyone did their fantasy drafts based off who yeah. they just liked and yeah. if you could do even like a little bit of projection and analytics it's like oh I could make some real, like I, that's a big edge in my fantasy leagues. Yeah. Um, even something as simple as like understanding BABIP in like 2013 was yeah. like, yeah, like, Oh no, this guy's going to come down to earth or, or this guy's going to go on a run here or whatever. So, um, and then basketball, you know, basketball was somewhere in between hockey and, and baseball mm -hmm. at that point in terms of the, the acceptance of analytics and stuff. So that's probably where like I first got like a bit of a, foothold and, and like people knew me as as something um and then what followed from there was uh so i went to the score mm -hmm. I, I like i was at ubc for a master's of journalism and I, and I dropped out because the score wanted to hire me and a big part of why the score wanted to hire me at the time was i could do every sport they could plug me in they were expanding their newsroom a lot and they were you know, it's kind of like uh, an Otto Lopez situation where it's like, ah, we don't know if you're great at any of these spots, but we will plug you in at like nine of them yeah. and you won't be terrible. And that's really, really valuable as we expand the newsroom. Um, and then it just the way it worked out is like they had obviously here in Toronto, a lot of people do hockey mm -hmm. and you know, it's, it's funny to look back on the crew that they had when they expanded the newsroom, like Thomas Strantz, who's one of the best NHL writers uh, in the league uh, covering the Vancouver, the Canucks for the athletic was there. Justin Cuthbert, who now co-hosts the morning show with Ailish, He was there at the time. And then on the baseball side, they had just like a row of heavy hitters. Like Drew Fairservice was there at the time. Um, Dustin Parks and Andrew Stoughton were there at the time. Jonah Bierenbaum, who's still there and had like a background of baseball perspectives, Brandon Wiley, um, Travis Sochik wasn't there yet, but he would eventually be there. So they were kind of loaded on baseball and hockey. And then they hadn't, I mean, football was like always like a little lower down for me, but like it ended up, they had a monster football team. Once they started taking football seriously too. like Justin Boone, who works there oh. is like consistently at the top of the fantasy pros, expert rankings and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and the list goes on. Um, so it just so happened that I ended up instead of being this kind of utility man, um, I was very quickly like, okay, I'm going to be on basketball all the time. And like, there were good basketball people there and Joe Cacharo is still there. Um, and he was awesome to work with and stuff. It was just, we were thinner on basketball. And so then I left the score after two years. And at that point I had, you know, a bit of a analytics reputation and then certainly had gotten more of a basketball reputation doing heavy basketball at the score. And then the way it kind of goes when you're freelancing and doing your own thing is um, I had Raptors Republic as my, like my home base and, um, kind of my foundation to build freelance on top of. And then once you start freelancing a little bit and you're getting, you know, if most of my reps out of the gate had been baseball, it mm -hmm. probably would have taken me down more of a baseball path because then you have more pieces that you can take to an editor and be like, well, here I do baseball stuff and mm -hmm. I can show you that for me, that was basketball. And I love basketball. I just like, 
I'm just being honest that I never really had a preference. Like mm -hmm. I would say baseball and basketball were like one A, one B in okay. some order when I was entering. And then like hockey was like, I should probably be able to do hockey mm -hmm. in Canada. And like, that's the sport I know best to play and like tactically and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, it just kind of, it became basketball just the way my career went. And then like such fortunate timing of the first year I went, freelance was the year the Raptors went on a run to the conference finals. And then my first year full-time at the athletic, instead of just a freelancer was the championship year. Yeah. Uh, so I have had a bit of a horseshoe up my ass for stuff like that. Uh, we'll see if the Jays win the world series this year, when I'm back doing Jays stuff, I'm going to like start claiming that, that it's me. <laughs> I'm, I'm the one causing yeah. all this stuff. Uh, just ignore the least part of it though. Yeah. Well, maybe, maybe both. You never yeah. know. You never know. Yeah. I do think I do think I could probably like get a book deal out of if I was covering a Leafs, Raptors, and Jays championship all within a five year span. Yeah, yeah, you definitely could, and you just definitely could go uh, all in for for that all. I, I guess how do you have time to kind of follow them? Like I know you're on the fan drive time and you cover all the sports. How do you have time to write and and cover basketball, baseball, hockey? How do you do it? Um. So. I don't know. It's just like, I, it's not something I think about okay. that intentionally um, because like, I'm always, I've always been someone who watches a ton of sports. And if I have downtime, that's what I want to do. Um, but I'll be honest, like one of the challenges with moving from writing about the Raptors only to going to Sportsnet, where I, I do have to be on top of all these sports. Like it's hard to do three sports at the level that, I want to do each sport and not that I'm like, I, I don't want to like pump my own tires, but I focus really hard on doing Raptors stuff when I was on the Raptors at a level that not, I don't think a lot of people could go into that much detail and consistency um, and writing volume and stuff like that. So that's kind of my expectation for myself when it comes to the Leafs and the Jays too. So that's, that's a hard part. Um, the Leafs have been the hardest to work in because Raptors and Jays, at least the important parts of the seasons, like align nicely. Yeah. Like right now, Raptor, even if the Raptors were headed to the playoffs, this like mid March to mid April part is like, everyone's just like, get me to the playoffs. Right. No one's that mm -hmm. geeked up. So it's not that tough to put a lot more attention into baseball right now. And then, you know, when baseball hits the playoffs, like, yeah, I missed Raptors training camp last year because I was on Jay's duty, but you can catch up pretty quickly, especially in a year like this year where the Raptors, like what, Otto Porter was the new guy and Christian Coloco. I think, yeah. I think everyone else on the beat can, can cover that and I'll, I'll be able to catch up. Yeah. Um, but it's the Leafs where that extra element is, is tough. And it's a lot of like, you know, this week's an example of when it, it gets a little easier because um, the Raptors go Tuesday, Thursday, Saturday, the yeah. Leafs go Monday, Wednesday, Friday, which that's, is like the opposite normally. Right. Yes. So. so that's nice and easy. Now it means I have no nights free this week and like obviously WBC and nine Oh five and stuff like that, mm -hmm. but that's all fine. Um, it's, it's the times where they both play at the same time and on the same nights that it gets a little tough. Then it's like, usually my process is Raptors always take priority and then PVR the Leafs and catch up on it after. Um, you know, I was able to do that on the morning show because, uh, JD and Alish, like, well, first of all, Alish is, um, yeah. hockey first anyway. Yeah. Um, and then JD 
you know, JD would prioritize Leafs and then PVR Raptors, and I would prioritize Raptors and PVR Leafs. So between the three of us, we were pretty sure to have all of it covered. Um, now on the drive time show, it's a little easier because like, I don't know, say I ran out of gas last night or I was really locked. It had, had the Raptors and Leafs both played last night. I was really locked into Puerto Rico, Dominican Republic. Like mm-hmm. I have today that I could have caught up on a game or something like that. Instead, mm-hmm. I'll catch up on wrestling. Um, <laughs> actually, March Madness starts in like an hour. So yeah, I'll yeah. catch up on wrestling yeah. today. Uh, so I don't know. It's just a lot of that. Like uh, I'm single and don't have kids. So that that helps yeah. um, to some degree. Uh I don't know. It's just like, it, it's a, I'm, this is a very rambly answer, but it's because I don't really think about it that much. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of, I don't want to make it seem like it's, it's like autopilot or anything. It's just, you do mm-hmm. it for long enough. It just kind of becomes what you do. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, it's hard sometimes, honestly, to keep up and like keep some sort of balance in mm-hmm. your life with all those sports going on. But I don't know. That's what you got to do to, to be able to do three sports at a decent enough level to have a job Uh, with the Leafs. Is it different for you with kind of the analytics being maybe a couple, like five, 10 years behind baseball and basketball that are more primed to analytics? Um, a little bit. Uh, I, I try not to get too deep into the weeds analytics wise with hockey, because I mean, first of all, like analytics in general, I find it makes better articles than it does radio conversation. Mm. Uh, so, you know, I don't really write about the Leafs, but if I'm on radio, you know, I, I want that stuff in my back pocket. I want to know how this lineup did or how this D pairing did, or, mm-hmm. you know, if Noel Achari is, you know, actually driving play and, and getting those goals, or if he's getting pretty sheltered minutes and, and just benefiting from his deployment, right? Like that, mm-hmm. I think that's important stuff to know, but a, I don't want to talk about it from an analytics standpoint because it turns people off uh, in, more in hockey than I think it does in other sports. And like B, it's none of the hockey analytics stuff is like if you strip the if you just take the conclusion and you strip the analytics away, um, it, it becomes eye test pretty quick. Uh, yeah. And this is the thing that like I, I have thought for a long time that mm-hmm. analytics uh basically it has a PR problem. It has a, is a, it's all a communication problem. Something Mm -hmm. I wrote, I want to say in 2012 at the Leafs nation uh, Mm -hmm. was a piece where literally I sat down with my dad who he now lives in Newfoundland, but like, he's a guy who I would play shinny with him, me, him and my, my youngest brother. And then whoever else, when I lived in Kitchener, uh, we would play shinny in Cambridge every Sunday morning. And my dad got all of his hockey analysis from Don Cherry and I was like, if I can't sit down and like make my dad understand why Corsi or quality of competition or quality of line mates, if I can't help, if I can't explain that to him in a way that he understands, then this is a pretty useless thing for having in articles or having on podcasts or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've kind of always like, and when I talk to students or whatever, I, I use the dad test. And it's like, mm-hmm. if I can't, if I can have a conversation with my dad about hockey where I can weave these things in, he understands what I'm talking about. Either it's too highbrow a stat to be a part of our media discussion. Mm-hmm. Like obviously team level stuff, you grab any 0.001% margin you can, yeah. but for discussion purposes, if I can't, you know, have a conversation over, over a beer with my dad when we're watching the game and, and I start talking over his head and um, mm-hmm. like, then it's, it's not valuable for communicating. So that that's more of a like analytics wide thing. I think a big part of the 
the like baseball obviously had the most dramatic analytics versus old school battle and you can read Moneyball or watch Moneyball to, to get more on that. Um, but a lot of that really came down to communication and stuff. And like, um, it's funny how it goes full circle in baseball where like, yeah, now one of the biggest jobs you could have as like a, a big part of an analytics team in baseball Mm -hmm. is like coordinating and organizing the scouting departments because (laughs) you need all the scouting, but the data stuff and the computer side of it is way is a way to make it way, way, way more efficient and effective, but you still need the eyes on the ground and getting to know the, and like you look at some of the Raptors, uh, you know, draft successes and the Raptors have a really strong analytics department. It's not like Pascal Siakam was like some bonkers analytics stud. Like he had really good numbers, but he had really good numbers playing on an okay team and an awful conference. Um, Mm. You know, like Fred Van Vliet, stood out because of the three-point shooting and the three-point volume, but any analytic model would have looked at Fred Van Vliet's height and been like, I don't know about that. So you have, even Norman Powell, like Norman Powell was not super analytic friendly coming out of UCLA because he didn't hit the three at all. And he had two seasons of his four seasons where he basically sat on the bench for UCLA. So didn't have a ton of playing sample, was an older prospect and didn't hit the three. So how does an analytics friendly front office find norm powell well it's about more than just the numbers right it's how these things all blend together so that's kind of where i try to do and that's what i would try to do with hockey as well as mm-hmm. you know how do we connect what a front office or a coaching staff is doing versus what we're seeing so mm-hmm. you know for hockey a lot of it is like i don't need to talk about Corsi percentage or yeah. or you know reference d zone start percentage or anything like that but we can certainly take those and be like Oh yeah, unless Sheldon Keefe starts this line in the offensive end, they're going to be pinned in their own end. Everyone yeah. knows what that looks like. Everyone's yeah. been on a line like that who's played hockey mm-hmm. and we can quantify it, but the quantifying it should just like kind of guide the discussion or the takeaway. It shouldn't be mm-hmm. and like if you ever read Justin Bourne or, or listen to yeah. Kipper and Bourne, like he's the the king of this where it's it, he almost sneaks it on you where you don't realize you're talking analytics and then it's like, "Oh, that was a very very smart way to talk about that and i would bet that that came from something he found going through some of the numbers um Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so i don't know hockey is like a a little i don't want to say behind but it's like it's a harder sport to weave that stuff into i also think honestly technically it's a much harder sport to evaluate and capture that data anyway because Mm -hmm. it is so fluid like no other sport has that many guys interacting at once and allows live line changes. Like yeah. imagine trying to figure out NBA lineup data. If guys could change on the fly. Yeah. 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 It's um, like, I know soccer has more moving pieces, but there are like three substitutions in a game like that. Yeah. That simplifies things a little bit. Whereas hockey, you're like, I don't know, he's on the ice, but was it a bad change by the guy who came off for him? Like you mm-hmm. have to, you have to consider so many different things like that in hockey. So I just think you have to be careful with, with how you present it and, and weave it in. And and what advice would you give to young journalists coming up in the industry in terms of writing, in terms of podcasting? What what would be kind of one takeaway that or or theme that you you'd give to them? Yeah, it's it's tough because there's it's hard to give advice based on my path without mm-hmm. discussing that I did a lot of shit for free. Mm-hmm. And I don't think anyone else should have to do that. And like I don't like come from money. 
Uh, but I went and got a business degree first and had that safety net where if this didn't work out, like when I went to journalism school, I had given myself a five year window where it's like, okay, I can afford to try this mm -hmm. for like five years. And then, you know, I, I can rack up the student debt and work a bunch of side jobs and stuff. But if it doesn't work by X point in time, I got to get back to like having a real life and paying off my student debts and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. uh, fortunately, things went a little better than that. But like, I also moved back in with my mom who lives like two hours outside of Toronto in the country um, mm -hmm. for like a chunk of that time I was freelancing. Um, so I know that that's not possible for everyone. Not everyone can take mm -hmm. stretches where they're not making very much money or don't know how much they're making or can go live at their parents' place or whatever. So um, I hesitate to like glorify that part of it. So what I would say then is you still need to do, you still need to get reps and mm -hmm you're probably not going to get paid for all your reps out of the gate. But the way to look at that is not necessarily, if you can, is not necessarily look at it as giving out free labor or anything like that, but it's practice, right? Like you have mm -hmm. to, like I said, like my first 10, 12 articles probably sound like Bill Simmons ripoffs. Yeah, and then eventually yeah. I figure out, okay, I'm not that funny. That's not what my style is going to be. Yeah. Let me try this. And this works and that works. Or I try this and I don't really like that. I don't want to write about that kind of thing. Um, and, and it takes some time to kind of figure that out, um, mm -hmm. both from a, what you like to do perspective and a, what you're good at perspective, mm -hmm. but trying to do that while like also living a life and like being a student or having to work a job and stuff like that is not very easy. So, um, I don't know how to resolve that part of it. Uh, yeah. I'm not in a position to like give out jobs and stuff like that, but I don't know. I hope people can take from that, that like, you got to do some some gratis work uh, for yourself, really, to figure that out. Um, now, if you can avoid it and just get paid for everything, awesome. Fucking yeah. more power to you. Yeah. Uh, I just am not super optimistic that that's going to happen in the industry. Um, the other thing beyond that is like beyond figuring out what you want to do and, and what you're good at and stuff. Um, one of the side jobs that I worked and when I went out to UBC, I had every side job under the sun. Like I was washing windows, I was cleaning wow. gutters. I was an extra in movies. Wow. Um, and then I also worked for the athletic department at UBC, which was cool because I, you know, my first time like talking to a person to write a feature on them was for like the men's basketball program, mm. uh, the program that you get when you actually go to the game. Oh, wow. um, okay. It was uh, a player who had come to Canada named Brill Kamen who um, end up having like a, a not significant career, but like still uh, telling his story about like bouncing around Canadian universities and stuff mm -hmm. like that. Um, and that opened up opportunities of like, okay, I'm going to get to try writing about women's rugby and I'm going to get a try doing color commentary on women's hockey and doing play-by-play -play on men's basketball. I'm like, let's see what sticks. Let's see what's fun. Let's see what I'm good at and stuff. So um mm -hmm. And those, I think most athletic departments um, pay you. So mm -hmm. if you are someone who's in college or university, uh, that is something that I would knock on doors about because then you get to do both, make money and yeah. Uh, yeah. and get some experience. But uh, understanding that those spots are, are pretty limited as well, obviously. And and just from this, you can we can tell that like you've worked really hard and you definitely deserve it all. So thanks so much for, for giving the advice. And uh, I'll try to take some of that with this podcast on the bill simmons thing i definitely feel that with my podcast i think i started out trying to mimic him a little bit and then i kind of found my niche so i definitely understand that a bit yeah and like i don't know it makes me sound 
old, but like the first thing I ever wrote was I think probably in like 2008 or something like that. And like, who else am I going to try to write like uh, yeah. and sound like if you're blogging into that, like there was Bill Simmons and then there was, well, this, this maybe would have been in retrospect, the better path to go, but like, you're probably too young to remember the site fire Joe Morgan, which was mm-hmm. basically um, a site where under pen names, these people would write about basically how shitty old school sports media still was. And if there was a bad column by this person or a bad rant on a broadcast, they would break it down and they would go kind of line by line and be like, you know what? This is what they said here. This is why that's ridiculous. This is what the numbers say. Uh, This is what, where our culture is now and why that's out there. Well, one of those people who wrote under the pen name, Ken Tremendous was Michael Schur who went on to like create the good place and be a writer on the office and a creator of parks and rec and all that stuff. And like, yeah, while he was trying to make it on that side of things, he was also writing under a pen name doing like baseball media criticism. <laughs> uh, so maybe I should have followed that instead yeah. of the the Ben Simmons wannabe path. Yeah. Um, but, yeah. you know, we, we found our way. And like yeah. now I'd imagine, you know, if you had started in the last, say, five years and you were someone who like especially on basketball and you lean toward, you know, the more analytic, the more film based, but still like really good writing like there are probably two dozen Zach Lowe wannabes now, yeah. right? That that are not, and I don't mean wannabe as in like you're trying to rip their thing off, but I think it's pretty natural when you first start out writing to try to write like the person whose work you like the most. Yes. So yeah, yeah, if I had come up five years ago, I'd been like, oh yeah, Zach Lowe, that, that's who I'm, yeah. that's who I'm stealing from. Yeah. Stealing uh, from. Yeah, I know. And I want to have a, let's have a little bit of a Toronto team segment to go off, to go off Zach Lowe. Let's talk some basketball in the Raptors. Um, they've took a really kind of interesting route at the trade deadline. They added Jakob Pertl. And this team's always talked about the approach to winning the championship, like with Masai and Bobby. What's what's their path to become an elite team while they've been mired in mediocrity all year and going forward? That is uh, the question for this offseason. And it's part of why I love Jakob Pertl. I think you see the fits pretty obvious on offense and defense dropped in with the other starters. I still wasn't the biggest fan of the deadline approach. Again, not, not giving up pieces for Jakob Pertl in a vacuum. That's fine. And he's a, a good guy and a, and a great player. But what is the plan? Like what, how does Jakob Pertl, does Jakob Pertl take you from the 11th best team in the East to the seventh best team in the East? Maybe, but who cares, right? Like that's not, and, and I don't want to fall victim to always living by Masai's play in for what quote from the Tampa year, because that was very much Tampa oriented. Like there were no, um, there were no revenues that year and everyone just wanted to get home. Mm-hmm. I was down there for a bit. It sucked. Mm-hmm. So, that still, though, and, and like there are play in and playoff revenues this year. There will be people at Scotiabank Arena for those games. That's a real thing. But I do think that it's a helpful guiding principle. And people used to, you know, I feel like play in for what can pretty comfortably uh, replace what people, the term people used to use for like the Joe Johnson era Atlanta Hawks and then the DeMar Kyle era Raptors, which is the uh, treadmill team, right? Like mm-hmm. you're always moving, but you're not going anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Raptors managed to avoid that. And I think part of their thinking as a front office still is that, well, we 
decided to stay on the treadmill and then 2016 happened and we went on this run. So obviously you're going to stay on the treadmill then because at least the treadmill's on an incline or whatever stupid, yeah. <laughs> whatever convoluted uh, thing you want to use for that. Um, so that happens. And then being really good and staying in that position is what allowed them to cash in and go for Kawhi and have it make sense and have them take the next step. I don't think waiting on the next Kawhi trade is uh, reliable enough roster building strategy i think they're in a really good spot where they have six seven maybe even eight guys that you want as a part of an nba rotation all of those guys would have trade or sign and trade value uh if push came to shove um but how do you take this team and get them where they need to go now you could look at it and say og is going to continue to improve maybe precious figures out whatever the hell's gone on with precious this year mm -hmm. and scotty barnes you know he looks cooler by the week so maybe that's the thing but you also have if you keep all three of your free agents you have no cap space you have done a really poor job finding actual value with the mid-level exception and by way of fighting so hard to make the play in you have turned what could have been a decent lottery pick into at best probably a low lottery pick maybe you Maybe you get super, super lucky in the lottery. You miss the play-in or you lose in the play-in and, I don't know, you jump up the draft. But you already kind of got your lottery luck when you moved from seventh to fourth for Barnes. I don't know that you can, like, reliably be like, yeah, we karma, we deserve that. You got your karma. Yeah. You got yeah. your payback for the Tampa stuff with Scotty Barnes. Yeah. Um, so that's where it's, it's a little confusing, where this team's obviously good. The starting five is destroying opponents, even very good opponents, um, so you can you can squint a little bit and see what they're thinking, but without Scotty Barnes, you know, just making the jump to superstar next year, which I'm not ruling out, but it's pretty rare for a guy in his third mm -hmm. year to to get to that level already. Um, or you find like another Scotty Barnes in the 10 to 16 range of this draft, mm -hmm. which again doesn't it's a good draft, but it's pretty flat after the top three or four picks. Um, I don't know. I I, I don't see what they're thinking in terms of what the next step is forward and that's where it gets you know it's always hard to be negative about a team that's pretty good and you really like their top mm -hmm. six or seven in their rotation but that's kind of where i'm at because i don't see unless there's a, a big move coming in the offseason and we'll see maybe there is like this group alone with a mid-level exception and uh like mid-teens pick dropped in is not winning the eastern conference no. And this front office has told us for a decade now that they're not in this to be an also rant. So mm -hmm. how do you marry those two things? I, I guess we'll see this offseason. And with with that, like obviously you mentioned the free agency. They have Fred, Pirtle, Gary. And I know you've talked about the bird rights trap. Like wh what's going to happen there? Like, is it possible that if any of those guys leave that they will get anything back, recoup anything for that in a sign and trade and and who would you want to bring back the most out of those players? Yeah, I think sign and trades always possible. Uh doing it with Pirtle would be just an awful look after you just gave up a first and two seconds. And yeah, part of that was to get out of Ken Birch's money, but that was your own contract anyway. <laughs> um, so I my guess would be that at least two of them are back and the the one who isn't is sign and traded elsewhere because again, what the bird rights trap means is these team, these players and their their agents kind of have leverage over you. If you're Gary Trent's agent, uh, who, by the way, he shares an agency with Fred VanVleet, so they're both mm -hmm. going to be playing this card. Um, you can tell the Raptors, you can say, look, 
you can re-sign Gary Trent Jr. at let's we'll use a high number at 25 million a year. Or we're walking and we're gonna sign somewhere else. And we know that you won't have the cap space to replace Gary Trent Jr. because you're using bird rights to go over the cap to re-sign all your guys. You don't, you're not a cap space team. So that element of leverage where if you do not pay what we want, we'll go elsewhere and you will get nothing. It turns the conversation from, well, is it Gary Trent Jr. for $25 million or you go spend $20 million on someone else to Gary Trent Jr. for $25 million or nothing? Mm-hmm. Then you start to get a little more comfortable overpaying to keep your own guy. I'm not saying this is going to happen. This is just playing out the example. But this is where I think um, keeping the keeping a mind open towards sign and trade stuff is going to be important because of exactly this. Like you don't have a path to adding via free agency, even if you let one or two of these guys go. So, you know, a sign and trade for Gary Trent Jr. Probably wouldn't return a bunch, but you might be able to get like a, a decent bench player back or, or, you know, an extra second round pick or something like that. You would have got more at the deadline. um, But, you're going to be in a, in a sign and trade scenario where you have a little less leverage. Uh, Fred sign and trades get really interesting because he's played so well since the trade yeah. deadline that I'd imagine his values way back up. Now you don't think the Clippers would like the, the Terrence Mann conversation back. If that was accurate, that they, they balked at including him. I think they'd love to do that trade right now with how things are going. Um, so that's an interesting one, but I also think like, if you're going to keep Pascal and Yaka Pertle and you're playing as if you're going to win right now, well, losing Fred Van Vliet doesn't make a lot of sense. So mm-hmm. um, my guess would be, and I don't want to chase bad money with good here because I thought at the deadline, Gary Trent Jr. was the likeliest to go. I still think he's the likeliest to not be back with the core mm-hmm. next year. He's going to have a good market. Um, the Raptors have generally incorrectly for the most part, but thought that they could cobble together bench scoring and bench shooting mm-hmm. uh, without really paying for it. Other teams can like, like Gary, like Jordan Clarkson, for example, makes like half what Gary Trent jr. Is going to make. I don't Gary Trent jr. Is a better overall player, but if all you're looking at is that bench scoring aspect, uh, mm-hmm. I do wonder if the Raptors look at it and think, well, we could come up with some other way of producing that. Um, and then they'll be even worse at shooting threes. So yeah. <laughs> we'll see yeah. how that goes. So it, they're in a tough spot. It's again, it's it's kind of a fascinating team and roster to cover this summer because they are good and they have all these good players, but you really don't come away with the confidence that it's going to result in more than like, like I think last year was kind of the upside, 48 mm-hmm. wins and you maybe in a different version, you beat that Philly team, but you weren't beating Boston or, or Milwaukee last year. You're probably not beat either of those teams or Philly or Cleveland, probably mm-hmm. not even the Knicks this year. Um, that that's where the, the trouble comes in evaluating these guys with, with you mentioned that the starters have had been really good this year. I, I'm just curious with that. And with Pirtles kind of integrated into the offense and defense but Siakam's been doing poorly of late do you think that's something a byproduct of Pirtle being in the offense and maybe clogging the lane or is that more kind of just Siakam struggling even though the offense has improved slightly I think it's a a combination of the two and I wouldn't use the term clogging the paint I know what you're getting at that there's another body in there but part of why Pascal's usage has gone down in the offense is that the Fred Yaka pick and roll has been really good Mm-hmm. And Pirtle's doing a great job keeping balls alive, 
uh, around the rim and things like that. Like you want him in that space, but you're right. Um, I haven't updated the numbers, but a couple games back on, on pregame, I, I said that I think it was like they played 150 minutes and change together, Van Vliet, Pirtle and Siakam and Siakam had only taken eight field goal attempts in the paint Oh my God. during yeah. those minutes. And it was like, like, that's like a, 50 or 60% drop off in how often he normally gets into the paint. Um, and then you're also seeing, obviously the free throw numbers are just, he's just not getting the line because he's not getting in the paint. Um, so that's something he's got to figure out. It's a, it's a little bit of a tough challenge because obviously he is your best player and you want him to be comfortable and have, you know, a similar role in the offense and he can operate pick and roll him and Jakob will have a good chemistry. Him and Fred have a good chemistry. Um, he just happens to be the guy who is having to make the biggest role adjustment right now, but you don't really want to, you don't want to over force it back into Pascal's hands because then what you're saying is, well, the Fred Jakob thing yeah. is working really well, but we got to get this thing that's not working well. Like so few things work well in this half court offense that I don't think you can take away from anything that's going. It's kind of on Pascal to find his spots and, you know, find more opportunities and better ways to get into the paint because like, yeah, I mean, the spacing's not as good either with Gary Trent Jr. being in those bench units now, but like, this is where it gets really confusing is Pascal all year has been a really good driver of bench production when it's him and one or two other starters and mm -hmm. then a couple bench guys that is completely dried up too. So you're looking at these like Pascal, Gary Boucher lineups that all season were good. And now suddenly they're not. And like, oh, that has nothing to do with Jakob Pertl. These are the same lineups that were good a month ago. Yeah. And that's where, you know, the mental component or the, you know, Michael Grange had a piece the other day about Pascal kind of going through it, you know, mm -hmm. mentally and spiritually through the slump. Um, there, there are a lot of threads to pull out there. Mm -hmm. Um, I think it'll work out more than it won't, uh, except for in crunch time where the Raptors are just like for the infinity year in a row, I, a disaster in crunch time. And, and with, I, let's talk about Scotty Barnes. I have a kind of a big picture question and I'm, I'm really curious to know what you think. Is Scotty Barnes good enough to be the best player on a championship team in your opinion? Is that his ceiling? Is that something that he could be in your opinion? Yeah, I mean, right this second, he's not. But, um, you know, if you yeah. read Samson Folk's thing at Raptors Republic the other day that went through all of Scotty's playmaking on the year, um, that is a unicorn skill for a guy his size. That's a unicorn skill for anyone. Uh, he, he passes at a level and at a creativity level that very, very few guys can replicate or, or even approximate. And, you know, I, I think because he does all of the hard stuff so well, right now they're at a point as an offense where maybe the people around him haven't caught up to how to play off of Scotty Barnes just mm -hmm. yet. It's like, you know, we saw it take a little bit of time for the Nuggets to figure out how to play off of Jokic and the Kings for how to play off of Sabonis. Barnes is a very different style of playmaker than those two guys, but it's the same thing. When you have a guy with a novel skill at his position and a, a unique style, it takes a little bit to figure out how to get the most out of that. The most exciting thing for Scotty is that like the, you, you go through the playmaking stuff and even some of the scoring stuff, he does all the hard stuff really well. And then some of the easier stuff, like not as well. And that's the stuff that like, that's autumn. If you're talking player development, that's the stuff that's automatic. It's going to come. Mm -hmm. there, he's too talented for some of that low hanging fruit to not come around. Mm -hmm. um, now, can he be the best player on a championship team? I think you can only say that about like 
five to eight guys in the NBA. So on probability terms, you'd probably have to say no, but like could a version of Scotty that adds a bit of a three point shot and gets more pick and roll reps and gets a little more consistent on defense. Like, could he get to a Siakam level of player? Like, absolutely. Like Scotty Barnes has the framework of an all NBA guy. If just a few things break, right. And then once you're at that category, like, You only like, how do I word this? Once you're at a certain level of talent and skill and and Scotty's already almost there, um, not an overall impact, but just like in the tools you're looking at, you get to a point where like, you can no longer doubt. What if a guy adds this? Because guys Mm -hmm. who reach that level, you can't put restrictions on their development at all. Um, So that's where it gets pretty, pretty fun to dream on right now. I'd say, you know, I think right now he could be the third best player on a really good team by next year. I think you'd probably hope that if he can be the, like, let's say they run it back completely. If it's him mm-hmm. and Pascal like this for the hierarchy of, of who the best player on the team is. Um, and obviously best is subjective and yeah, stuff like yeah. that, but let's say his offensive role grows and he's, he's close to a 20 point a game guy has the ball in his hands more than just about anyone other than Fred, you know, I think, I think he could be that guy by, by next season. And that could be like a good team champ. Best guy on a championship team is like, like there are like none of those. Yeah, <laughs> there are yeah. only like five, six, maybe seven of those. Um, and even like, like the Clippers are supposed to have Kawhi and Paul George, and they're still not that good. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Warriors have Steph and Clay and Draymond, and they're still struggling because Wiggins is out. Like, that's how mm-hmm. I, I don't want to like throw your question out, but I don't want to, you know, no. I, I hesitate to have the soundbite of like Scotty Barnes could be the best player on a championship team because best player on a championship team also requires you to be surrounded by Very just fun. loads of other really good players too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like Marcus Gasol and Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka and Fred mm-hmm. and Pascal. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, anyway, I am very high on Scotty though. And I think, you know, after that little bit of a blip early in the season where people were questioning a lot of stuff about his game and we saw some skill plateau or even erosion in some of his decision-making on offense, I don't know, since like the middle of December, he's been unbelievable. Would you want him quickly to do have more of the ball in his hands and, and running more pick and rolls? Do you think that would be really important for his development? I would like to see it. I know right now it's a little tough because you know they have a lot of mouths to feed and this is why this is why it's been a little confusing um which bench units they run sometimes and which combination of guys because i think you can very clearly separate pascal and scotty and have them each like one of pascal or scotty one of fred or og and then three bench guys and i think that that's a good balance of skill and those are your opportunities for scotty to control a little bit more of the offense and stuff um i just want to see like this is the other thing is like, if all you care about right now is getting the seven or eight seed and winning a play in, mm-hmm. then the answer is probably not right now because mm-hmm. other things in the offense are working. And Scotty Barnes has a role he's really effective in right now. And he actually, I, I thought has shown more growth as like a screener and roller this year mm-hmm. than anything mm-hmm. else to pick and roll. But if you're being realistic and saying, okay, even if you get a play and you're going to get bounced in the first round, this is about figuring out what'll work for future years. Like, yeah, he should, I, I would love to see it. We even saw over the last three games, OGs run a little bit more pick and yeah. roll than he has. And that's not something that has generally looked good for him the last two years. It has the last couple games. I I'm all in favor of with guys who, you know, are a part of the future. 
give him some additional reps here down the stretch and, and let's see what what can click or let's even give them some experience and some tape to take with them into the summer right like mm-hmm. send scotty barnes into his summer program with a reel of hey you ran these 20 25 pick and rolls over the last couple games this is what it looked like this is what we're working on for the summer mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um with og i'm just curious like do you think he's been good enough to be a first team all defensive player. And what have you really liked in his offensive game of late? Cause he's kind of been much better lately against the Lakers and then the nuggets on, on Tuesday. Yeah. The offensive side is, uh, is pretty straightforward. I mean, I think the wrist thing was hampering him a little bit still uh, the threes. I was never really doubtful. They'd come around. O- OG has this weird three point shooting profile where the overall numbers just say he's like a good three point shooter, like 37, 38%. And then if you take out all the like kind of meandering pull-up threes he's allowed to take sometimes, if you just look at his catch-and-shoot stuff on the wing and in the corners, then he's like one of the best like spacing mm-hmm. weapons there is. It's just and he's young enough, he's 25, right? You want like with we were just talking about with Scotty, like we mm-hmm. talked about with Pascal three, four years ago, you want to give him a little bit of freedom to take those. But numbers wise, yeah, he goes from an elite catch and shoot guy to just a decent three-point mm-hmm. shooter. When you factor those in um, lately, though, threes are, are obviously up. Um, he's run a little bit more pick and roll and ISO, which you don't need to carve out a ton of possessions for OG to do that. But let rewarding him for all the defense and the fact that his role on offense is often to be stationary in the corner, rewarding him with a couple possessions of a game where he can freelance a little bit, I think is a good way to keep him engaged. Um, I think he's picked those opportunities well, like when a Jamal Murray is yeah. on him instead of, you know, if it's Michael Porter Jr. or Aaron Gordon, you, you probably don't want to take those risks. Um, so I think those things are, are good for him. And then defensively, yeah, I, I actually have a piece coming for sportsnet.ca sometime mm-hmm. this week about just that. Uh, it's about OG's potential extensions with the, the CBA yeah. changes that might be coming this offseason. But also just like, I started to write it and I was like, these are too many numbers. I'm just going to do like a quirky bullet point. Here's all the like, ridiculous OG and an OB defensive stats right yeah. now um, do with them what you will. But like he grades out as the second most versatile defender positionally in basketball behind only Scotty Barnes, because if OG's yeah. changing his role a bunch, who else has to change, right? Uh-huh. Someone has to switch guys. Um, Pascal grades pretty high by that too. Um, but then you look at among players who switch positions a lot, OG has by far the highest matchup difficulty. Like he's playing, he's guarding the highest usage guy on the other team more often. Um, He also has one of the best catch and shoot three point percentages of any of those kind of, you know, I tried to basically filter for, okay, who's a a really versatile defender and then has a role player definition on offense. Mm -hmm. And OG just kind of like blows everyone away Mm -hmm. by, and I know defensive stats are noisy and messy. Like we, we have a decent understanding with centers how to statistically capture their impact less so with perimeter and point of attack guys. But when you take all of these stats that we take with grains of salt and mm-hmm. they all, they agree on nothing across the league, but they all agree that OG is really, really good defensively. <laughs> I think we can start to come yeah. to some conclusions in yeah. addition to the eye test and stuff like that. Like um, there's a wild stat in that piece and I don't have it in front of me, but the numbers when someone tries to isolate against OG this year mm-hmm. And it's it's nonsense, like how much he just erases that. Hmm. Um, I have it here somewhere. Oh, yeah. So when 
a player tries to isolate on OG, they're shooting 21 of 65. So shooting less than 33% and with 11 turnovers. Oh my God. Oh my goodness. Wow. Yeah. Just stop isolating. Yeah. Um, yeah. So you get into the versatility and the, the matchup difficulty and things like that. I think he's pretty clearly an all defense guy. I don't think he'll get defensive player of the year votes because nobody since the eighties has gotten defensive player of the year on a losing mm-hmm. team. Um, even like in the last 25 years, only twice, I think, has it gone to a player on a team that won fewer than 45 games. Oh, wow. So, like, it's not quite the level of MVP, but they don't give Defensive Player of the Year to guys on bad teams. Yeah. That's going to hurt him. I think pretty unquestionably he should be on all defense, either first or second team. Um, And I know he missed 14 games. Jaron Jackson Jr. is, like, the favorite for Defensive Player of the Year right now. And OG's played, like, 400 more minutes than him this year. Yeah. It's... Yeah. If he doesn't make all defense this year, I might lose my mind. Yeah, yeah. Uh, now I I wanted to go from one Toronto team in, in the Raptors who's struggling maybe to find an identity this year to another who struggles to win playoff series in, in the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, going into the playoffs for the Leafs, presuming O'Reilly comes back and, and the Leafs are pretty kind of injury-free, how confident do you feel in the team winning a, a round against the Leafs and maybe, uh, I'm sorry, pardon me, against the Lightning and maybe going deep in the playoffs. More confident than I have in years past, which for the Leafs probably means I should uh, be less confident because it's not going to go. Look, they're a better team than the Lightning at this point. The Lightning deserve all the respect and um, admiration for what they've done the last couple of years. But there is a cumulative toll to being in that many deep cup runs and having your roster age a little bit. Um, they might be on their last legs here. And I, I don't put a ton into the recent slide they've had, or even like Vasilevsky has looked human this year. Like, would it surprise anyone if he steals like three games in that series? No. Um, the Lightning are also Justin Bourne had a great piece at Sportsnet last week about how the Lightning are very likely to try to gum up that series and make it a physical series with a lot of power play and penalty kill time for both teams because the Leafs are way better at five on five, but on special teams, the two teams are kind of even. So Mm -hmm. if you can, if you take the game out of the five on five free flowing realm where the Leafs are better, that tilts the edge toward Tampa Bay. Having said that, I think the Leafs are deeper in forward depth than in the past. They've got at least three. Like I, I trust the first, the second and the fourth line. We'll see what the third line looks like when Ryan O'Reilly comes back and if they pair him back with Tavares or give him his own line. But you could conceivably be running four lines that you trust um, and all of whom can give you a little more scoring punch than last year's bottom six could. Mm-hmm. I have some questions about what decisions they're going to make with the the defensive grouping, um, picking which six out of those nine. I've been a bit of a Luke Shen skeptic. Um, going back to his cup runs with Tampa where he barely played um, because, you know, he was kind of that seventh, even eighth defenseman for them. Sometimes there will be a role for him at times. Gustafson hasn't looked that great. I know he's kind of Morgan Riley insurance. Mm -hmm. Um, Liljegren has looked like he's lost a little bit of confidence since they brought in other defensemen. So I have some questions back there. Um, And then the goalie thing, like that's the, the one area that Tampa, like if you were going to be, what's Tampa's biggest advantage? Well, probably Victor Hedman, but also they have a huge goaltending advantage. Even if Samsonov has better numbers this year than Vasilevsky, but I'm not picking anyone over Vasilevsky in a playoff series. So um, all of this is a kind of rambly way to say what every Leafs fan, I think or person who covers the Leafs fan is saying right now, which is 
I want to believe because by every objective measure, this is a better team than Tampa Bay. Um, but it's hard to get past that cloud that it doesn't matter because it's the Leafs in the playoffs and it's the lightning in the playoffs. Mm-hmm. Um, let's hope though, because it's going to be a weird, weird off season. If not with the Austin Matthews extension and Kyle Dubas free agency uh, and stuff like that. Yeah, I guess I it's better for me as in like sports radio, yeah. but uh, I would be not thrilled about for the seventh year in a row, trying to talk about what to do after a first round exit. I, I do feel weirdly, I, I'm not a Leafs fan, but weirdly optimistic that if they were to beat the lightning, I kind of like them against Boston just in terms of, in a way, I mean, the team that wins the president's is it the president's trophy. I think rarely won the cup really in the past 15 years. So I kind of like them if they were to get into that kind of break the hump and and go deep, but yeah. Yeah. And like Boston loaded up at the deadline too, and they look really, really good. I don't know. The East is just this. It's great for hockey that the playoffs are are shaping up to be this loaded. Like Mm -hmm. Colorado looked great in that game last night and the Leafs kind of wilted in that one, but the mm-hmm. uh the Leafs, I don't know. There, you you kind of are in the position where if you are ever going to let yourself believe in the Leafs, you kind of have to right now because again, by like most objective measures, they're one of the three, probably three or four best teams in the league. Mm-hmm. And and going from one team in in the Leafs that I think definitely could win the cup. Uh, if everything went right and and maybe Matt Murray became uh, 2016 Matt Murray or or Samsonov kind of uh, is that good in the playoffs to to the Blue Jays, a, a team obviously we've talked about you really like and and near and dear to your heart in terms of just such a baseball fan. How how good can the Blue Jays be this year? And is it World Series or bust with Vladdy and Bo? I don't think. Yeah, I don't think World Series are bust because you at least have them for two more years before you have to start doing free agency and extension math and what a reset would look like. Um, I think if they repeat in the wild card, that's a a failure. I think the bar should probably... You have to accept that the baseball playoffs are a little random. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think the bar should honestly be, and it's going to be really difficult in the AL East, I think the bar internally should be to win the division. Take the randomness of a two-game playoff series out of it make sure that you've secured that spot and you know what you're, you know, you know, you're in the driver's seat. Um, I don't think there's any reason they can't do that other than that. The AL East is really good and the Rays and Yankees mm-hmm. look good as well. But I think, I think that should be the goal. I think last year, the last two years, three years, even you've had really good seasons and each one has technically been a progression from the last one. And you're taking these steps, but they've been very small steps. Mm -hmm. Um, especially last year's step from, oh, we missed the playoffs by a game to, oh, we made the playoffs, but didn't win a game. Um, And even the year before that, the like lockout shortened nonsense season, like they made the playoffs Playoffs, and they didn't win a game. Like their playoff run lasted like 27 hours. Like literally it was just over in a day. Depressing. Yeah. 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 Um, So I, I think a real playoff run is necessary. And I think the best way to put yourself in that position is to win the division because mm-hmm. then you don't have, not only you get through the first round, no matter what, but you don't have that, ah, oh, well, randomness of baseball um, to kind of sour everything. I think this team is good enough and they've added enough and the payroll investment behind them is, is strong enough. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they've got, you don't need to start thinking this way right now because the only obvious hole is like a deep bench hole but like you have prospects to pull from still 
Mm-hmm. You can always add by the trade deadline. Um, so I don't know. I have high expectations for them. And yeah, I think like 94, 95 wins and, and a chance to win the division should be what they're targeting, not just a playoff spot. And they've they've added a lot of left-handed bats and in in Kiermaier, Belt, Varshow, and and just better defenders overall. Like the team will be a better defensive team, but they lost Teoscar, Guriel, Moreno. How good will their offense be this year compared to last year? Do you think? Yeah, it it'll probably take a, a small step back, at least in terms of things like home runs and maybe even run total. But I think versatility in a lineup is helpful. Uh, versatility in terms of righty lefty in terms of how you go about producing offensively um, I think last year was probably the floor for what Vlad looks like so you get a little bit of progression from Vlad I think you hope that Springer moving to right field full time keeps him in the lineup a little bit more often um, and then yeah like the defensive priority there's a, another component to those players that they got out with a premium on defense. It's that those are also guys who can do a little work on the base paths. Mm-hmm. And with the rules changing, you know, we've seen stolen base attempts up around baseball, about 25% in spring wow. training. Yeah. Um, now I don't think all of that will carry over into the regular season, but the Jays among them, you know, the Jays have actually, they've gotten thrown out and picked off a lot this spring, uh, which is fine. You got to figure it out with the, the new pitcher tempos and trying to bait the pitcher to throw over and the bases being slightly closer and all that stuff. Um, I think they're going to run a little bit more and guys like Kiermaier, um, Varshow, even Whit Merrifield, if you want to consider him an addition mm-hmm. since he was, he didn't play a big role until late last year. Um, those are guys who give you maybe not versatility in terms of, you know, who a pitcher is afraid of each day, but you've got a couple, you've got more paths to, creating offense now um Mm -hmm. and certainly you are significantly better defensively like you should have the best defensive outfield in baseball you've got three three guys who played center field as their primary position last year if you're Mm -hmm. not a really good defensive outfield something has unraveled um that's on top of which having chapman the best third baseman defensively in the american league and depending on who's on set at second that day like Sometimes Santiago Espinal, who's among the best second baseman defensively. Uh, mm-hmm. And Vlad won a gold glove if you care about first baseman defense. And Kirk and Jansen, every time they come up with a new baseball savant catching metric, they're right at the top. I don't know what MLB and Mike Petriello and those guys are doing, but they they clearly hate Matt Chapman and love Alejandro Kirk and Danny Jansen because every defensive metric is like, Jays are the best catchers and Matt Chapman's just average. No, that's so weird. That's so yeah. weird. Um, I wanted to go quickly to the pitching staff and and not just that, but just the pitching in general. They obviously last year, the bullpen was a huge problem for them. They addressed it at the deadline. How do you see the this pitching staff kind of and, and the bullpen going into this year? Is it is it significantly better than last year? I wouldn't say significantly. I think they're in a spot where, and look, this front office has has not told us with words, but told us by the way they've built their rosters over their time. And this can go back to Cleveland, although they weren't super competitive in the instances I'm thinking of. But they, if you have limited resources, they do not believe in using them on relievers, which is the most volatile position. Mm-hmm. So you look at their bullpen, None of those guys cost much of anything in terms of dollar amount. Now, Eric Swanson cost you Teoscar Hernandez. So that's mm-hmm. pretty big uh, a cost. Um, Anthony Bass and Zach Pop obviously cost you a pretty good piece of prospect capital. Um, and, and you can go down through that. But um, I think where they're at right now is for a team that has told us basically straight up, sorry, mm-hmm. um, straight up that they won't spend dollars on relievers. 
what they've done is create a pretty deep bullpen to pull from where if the season started today, let's put Mitch White on the IL because we haven't really seen him yet. Um, you also have Chad Green on the IL who doesn't maybe figures in late in the year. Um, but even with those two guys on the IL and Kikuchi locked into a starting spot for right now, you are having to make some tough decisions where um, Zach Pop is probably sneaking onto that roster, but Nate Pearson, Yost for Zulueta, Zach Thompson, Trent Thornton will, and we'll say Thomas Hatch just cause he's on the 40 man. Although I don't think he'll be uh, and Hagen Danner, like all of those guys are guys who ostensibly were competing for that final bullpen spot and could get a look for it at some point in the season. Um, that's good depth to have. Now, none of those names I just said are getting anyone. Maybe Pearson gets someone yeah. excited still, but those are just depth options. That's what you need to have at this point in the year. Every team, even teams with really good bullpens, go through 13, 14, 15 relievers over the course of the season. That's the good spot to be in right now under the condition that they realize they need to add some back-end stuff around the deadline. Now, mm -hmm. the last couple of years, they've basically shown us they, they believe in that process of coming to camp with low-risk, low-cost guys and address it at the deadline. Unfortunately them and I have disagreed on what constitutes properly addressing that at the deadline. Yeah. Um, I was very underwhelmed with the trade deadline return last year. And I say this as someone who really likes Zach pop. I think Anthony Bass is cool. You need swing and miss stuff at the back end of your bullpen. I know there are some guys with their, their velo ticking up right now in spring training in the, in the bullpen, which is great. Trevor Richards change up looks awesome. Maybe Jay's fans are willing to, you know, give him one more try. I'm, I'm a little sketchy on it. Um, Eric Swanson's great, but yeah, you're like, if we were to sit here right now and say, what are, what are we talking about on August 1st trade deadline time? It's like, how do you add back end stuff to the bullpen? And I think that's fine as long as they don't do what they did last year, which is buy into an overperforming group that has a good floor, but no ceiling mm -hmm. because I think come playoff time, bullpen ceiling is really, really important. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much, Blake, for, for taking the time and coming on. Is there anything, I know you mentioned a story on OG, anything else in the works that you want to kind of share for the listeners to. Uh, nothing specific. No, I don't know when that OG piece is going up. Maybe by the time this is up. Um, yeah, just bouncing around Jays and Raptors and drive time and wherever they need me that day. Well, thanks so much, Blake, for taking the time. I'll definitely check out uh, the WrestleMania whenever that is in L.A. And uh, I really, really appreciate this. It's really cool to have you on and uh, hopefully you can do this another time. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me.